The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please now turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 2. As we come near the end of our Apostles' Creed series, we find that the salvation message is summed up in this one short statement, the forgiveness of sins. Notice that in the Creed, the words salvation and gospel are not included The authors give no mention to the doctrines of justification or sanctification. And while the authors and the editors of the creed lay the foundation for our salvation and the incarnation of Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, they provide no theory of atonement. They don't explain what happened at the cross. We find in the creed, the brilliance of the early church in capturing the core of the universal condition of every single one of us, our guilt, our fear of judgment, and our desperate need for forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins connects our broken human nature with a relational God who provides reconciliation. Well, tonight we explore this core doctrine as we meet a needy man who encounters the Lord Jesus himself here in Mark chapter 2. I read verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they sat down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose 
and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord our God. O great God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When we began this series several months ago, I shared with you a part of my testimony of coming to personal faith in Christ when I was a junior in high school. And as I reflect back upon that season, I can see at least two key phases in my conversion. The first phase is what I refer to as the letting God be God phase. I was suffering through a season of intense anxiety and came to the conclusion that there was a God and that I was not him and that he was in control. And so I began to surrender to the truth that there was a God who was sovereign and good. And that brought me some relief, but as the weeks wore on, I became increasingly burdened with a conscience of guilt over my sin. And I found myself wandering like John Bunyan's Christian, with a weighty burden on my back. The Lord sent an evangelist, the late Jack Morrison, to explain to me the message of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins through faith in the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The burden fell off my back. I received joy and relief that was visible to my friends and family. I was set free, no longer bound to the shackles of my shame and guilt. I experienced what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, that Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is foundational to everything we believe as Christians. John writes in his first epistle, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness is also a weighty matter. Jesus says some pretty hard things in regard to forgiveness. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive your brother's trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. We frequently confess in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors, Jesus said to Peter, Forgive your brother not seven times, but seventy times seven. Where do we find the resources for forgiveness? I want to approach this topic and our text with three questions. First is, why can't God just forgive us? 
The second, how can God forgive us? And third, what does forgiveness mean for us? The first question, why can't God just forgive us? Many skeptics in our increasingly secular society wonder what all the fuss is about. Why do we even need forgiveness? If there is no God, what do we need to be forgiven for? Are we not just biological creatures acting on impulse? Do we not just need better education and medications to heal all of our human ills? And if there is a God, why can't he just forgive the way a loving parent or grandparent overlooks offenses of a child out of pity and understanding? Have we not all forgiven others for their selfishness by simply letting things go and letting them off the hook? Have we really required sacrifice from others? Well, this very issue comes up in our text. As this needy, paralytic man is brought to Jesus. Now, as we come to this text, I want to commend the commitment and the cleverness of these four friends as they bring this disabled man to Jesus. We can just imagine the scribes' furrowed brows of disapproval. The dismay on the homeowner's face as he looks at a costly home repair in the, in the formation. And the broad grin forming across the face of Jesus as he observes the faith of these men. These men exercise bold faith, determined faith, interrupting a sermon, valuing a person over property, and trusting that their friend would actually get relief. Well, Jesus seizes the moment to offer us a valuable lesson. Now, Jesus could have simply healed the man and confirmed his role as a prophet of God. And yet, Jesus goes further to establish his unique authority to offer forgiveness of sins. When he says to the man's son, your sins are forgiven, it was one of those, what did he just say, moments. The scribes were not only scratching their heads, they were very disturbed. They were not only very disturbed, they were angry. They questioned in their hearts, who can forgive but God alone? They are deeply offended, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He presses the dilemma even further by forcing his hearers to the logical, to the logical conclusion what they question. He asks them, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to command this man to rise up and walk? Well, the answer is obvious. Obvious, it's the former, but by proving the latter, he established his, his authority, not only over physical ailments, but our deep, more pressing, and eternal, spiritual ailments. 
You see, the Jews recoiled at what Jesus was suggesting. Because in their minds, forgiveness was a matter taken up only at the temple, through the sacrificial system. See, it was the priest's job, by way of animal sacrifice, to provide atonement, to provide the means for forgiveness. You study the book of Leviticus, there's all kinds of requirements and specifications for how people could come and present their sacrifice and receive forgiveness, receive assurance from the priests that they were now at peace with God. But now Jesus is coming with a whole new authority, trumping what the Jews had known for millennia. But what Jesus has to teach here Is nothing new. It is foreshadowed in the Old Testament as we consult David in Psalm 51 as he is confessing his sin of murder and adultery. He cries out to God saying these words, God will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. David is pointing beyond animal sacrifices to something greater. And Jesus is fulfilling in this action the many promises we find throughout the Old Testament where God promises to blot out our transgressions, to make them whiter than snow, though they are red as crimson, to hide our sins behind his back, to hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. As we learn from the author of Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. That's why they had to be repeated over and over and over and over and over again in anticipation of the one final sacrifice. So the Jews, when they heard Jesus make this statement, their question is, where's the blood? Where is the blood sacrificed to secure this man's forgiveness? And Jesus implies by his response, follow me. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In contrast to these ancient peoples 2,000 years ago, modern people ask, why the blood? Why is blood even necessary? Modern people in the Western world have a very cavalier attitude towards forgiveness because we trivialize sin. We are blinded, blinded to the wretched fact, the cosmic ruin that sin is. We fail to recognize what a deep rebellion Our sin is in the sight of God. We fail to appreciate that God is holy. That he is just and righteous beyond our imaginations. You see, God built this world to be perfect. And we spoiled it with our first disobedience. As Pastor Rogers covered just this morning. And when God brought forth through Israel the law of Moses... It was to communicate his righteous requirements of holiness. 
what it means to be truly holy in his sight. And sin, by definition, is anything falling short of that perfect standard. And yet, throughout the Old Testament, even in the provision of the law, God also provides a provision of forgiveness. As he reveals to Moses in Exodus 34 that he is the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means will he clear the guilty. Ancient peoples inherently understood that guilt required blood sacrifice. Every pagan religion in the history of the world had some means for blood sacrifice. Modern people now turn to pop psychology to suppress our inherent guilt, to explain it away with naturalistic terms. But the universal human condition cannot be swept away by new terms or by any type of medicine or new technology. When people ask why God can't just forgive, they demonstrate their failure to understand the gravity of sin and also the costliness of sacrifice. Were you to bump into me in the hallway, it would be a very small thing for you to say, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me. And I would just graciously dismiss such a small matter. Now, if you were to drop a piece of raspberry cheesecake on my wife's dress at a, at a dessert social, she would very graciously overlook the matter, though it would be a little costlier, probably in the form of a dry cleaning bill. But if you spread a rumor about me in the church that tarnished my reputation, it would cost a little bit more, would it not, to lend forgiveness. When we begin to move down this pathway of understanding that to render forgiveness requires a cost, somebody has to bear the cost. And when we consider how when we sin, that it is a tarnish, it is an attack on the reputation of God, and when we begin to multiply our sin our personal sin and rebellion against God, our treachery, our greed, our murder in our hearts, our idolatry. When we begin to multiply that to the billionth power, we begin to just see the magnitude of our debt to our maker, as well as the greatness and the costliness that the sacrifice for forgiveness must be. You see, God cannot merely dismiss sin because he is holy and just. We would not consider a judge to be just if he simply let a murderer go without a punishment. But in the gospel, according to Paul in Romans chapter 3, we learn that God is both a just judge and he is the justifier is at the cross of Christ, that God satisfies his justice and also provides justification. He provides forgiveness. Psalm 85.10 says, 
that righteousness and peace kiss one another. They meet at the cross of Christ Jesus. Jesus' perfect life satisfied the law's righteous requirements on our behalf. His death paid the penalty of death that is due to every single one of us for our sin. It satisfied. It quenched the wrath of a holy God. And then by his grace, God applied the credit of Christ's righteousness to our accounts. We call this the great exchange, which, the, which is expressed by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A few weeks ago, my wife bought one of our younger children a new set of white summer pajamas with this, this tiger on the front. This is his favorite pajamas because of that tiger. Now, because that shirt is white, and because my son is especially skilled at getting syrup and chocolate and other kinds of stains on that shirt, it's become a big frustration trying to keep that white set of pajamas clean. And my wife now vows she will never again buy a white set of pajamas. Contrast that with my other son who was with me at a ball game this week and fell and cut his finger on a sharp rock. And some other parents found him and brought him over to me. His hands were covered in blood. And it was all over his shirt. And we got the little dock kit, and I cleaned him up real good and bandaged him, and we watched the rest of the game. And then when we went home that night, cleaned him up a little bit again, but then I took his shirt off of him, and I was glad the shirt was red. It was much easier to clean. And the stains did not stick out as bad as a white shirt. You see, without Christ, our sin is like stain on a white garment, a blemish against God's holiness. But when we are in Christ, when we are in Christ, when we trust in Christ, God sees us covered in his blood, and the stains are gone. All the shame and all the guilt has been wiped away by Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. So what does forgiveness mean for us? If that is the means for our forgiveness, by trusting in Christ, by being identified with his death and sacrifice for us, what does that mean for us? Well, as we come back to our text, we realize you and I are as helpless as this paralytic. We had to be carried in on a stretcher to the feet of, of Jesus. We are spiritual invalids that need to be brought to the throne of grace. We also realize from this paralytic that when we come to God in crisis, forgiveness may not be necessarily the first thing we're looking for. We're looking for something else. We're looking for relief. We're looking for a problem to be solved. This paralytic just wanted to be healed. But Jesus gave him much more. And when we come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, we get more than a few problems solved. Not to diminish the problem of paralysis. But compared to our eternal condition, it, that too, is a small matter compared to our great need. Our great need of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. So what does that mean for us? 
it means that you and I come empty-handed. That you and I cannot pay the debt. You ever had a child who wanted to pay his or her own way? A plane fare, a train fare, a bus fare. That child wants to pay his own way but doesn't have the resources to do it. Mom or dad has to do it for him. You and I can't pay our own way. We have to accept the means and the provision God has given us through Jesus Christ. It also begs the question, as you learn to appropriate and receive God's forgiveness, can you forgive yourself? I find that to be a common problem that Christians struggle with. I'm coaching a baseball team of one of my sons this season. And one boy on our team has been struggling recently as I put him on the mound to pitch, and he struggled to throw strikes. And as he's gone to the plate to swing the bat, he hasn't gotten a base hit in a couple weeks. And he comes back to the dugout, not only downtrodden, but so angry and frustrated with himself, beating himself up physically and verbally, and so consumed with his poor performance. And it's been a challenge for me as a manager how to address him and approach him and pull him aside and help him understand. To be, to be gracious with oneself, to not have such high expectations for himself. And I think about this little boy and how he illustrates so many of us. That one of our worst problems in the spiritual life is to beat ourselves up. And many times it's our pride. Our failure to appropriate the grace of God. To trust and believe that I'm forgiven. That though I continue to struggle, that though I continue to mess up, though I continue to fall down, though I continue to fail, how I, I, I continue to not measure up to God's standards. I'm forgiven. And I stand in that forgiveness and I embrace that forgiveness by faith. And I can live a new life. And I can be a new creature in Christ free of that burden and have life and joy through Christ. Another practical application to this issue is can you forgive others? My sister a few years ago out in Henderson, Nevada, their community suffered a tragedy. One of my sister and her family's close friends suffered the unthinkable the father of this family was out one evening in a, I, think, I believe it was a golf cart, and had his young son, probably eight or nine years old, with him. And it was a little dark, couldn't see real well. And they were coming along a, a turn, and they either collided with something or lost control of the golf cart. And the impact and the crushing weight of the cart took the life of the little boy. My sister, sometime shortly after that incident, was talking with another set of friends, and this other young mom confessed to my sister, not, not the mother of the boy, but another mom, confessed, if my husband ever did that, I could never forgive him. And here was the, the response of an unbeliever, lacking the resources, lacking the means to heal, to lend forgiveness and show grace. It points us to Scripture, 
Do you remember the parable that Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 18 about a servant who had this astronomical debt owed to his master? And the master called him to account. And the servant could not pay it and was threatened with imprisonment, not only him but his whole family. And the servant begged for mercy and leniency, promising to pay. And the master had pity on his servant and forgave the debt. But then the servant goes out and almost immediately finds another servant who owed him a very small debt, just a few weeks' wages. And the servant began to strangle his fellow servant, demanding and insisting that he pay him back. And when the master learned of the heartless behavior of his servant, he punished him and pronounced judgment upon him. And so Jesus says in conclusion, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. If it is hard for you to forgive someone else, perhaps you need to reconsider what it means to be forgiven. Perhaps you need to go back again to the fount of everlasting blessing. To go back to the deep wells of God's grace. And appropriate for yourself and to draw the deep waters of God's refreshing grace that alone can heal your soul. That alone can set you free from your bondage. That alone will set you free to experience the forgiveness of God provided in Christ Jesus. And so lend that forgiveness to others. One of our church members was in the Middle East a few years ago. And he intervened in a dispute between one of the Middle Eastern men and a feud he was having with someone else. And the man from our church had some rapport with him, and he encouraged him, well, can't you forgive this man for this offense? And it was a relatively minor offense. And this man from the Middle East said, no, I cannot. And it occurred to this American that this Middle Eastern man, it wasn't just a matter of stubborn pride. In his cultural context, forgiveness doesn't happen. There is no means. There is no paradigm. There is no teaching of forgiveness at all. What a far cry that testimony is to what we saw in the Amish community years ago at the tragedy that happened at Nickel Mines as families of the Amish went to not only minister to their own bereaved, whose children had been murdered by a gunman, but even went to that gunman's funeral and reached out to his family members as well. The storehouses of God's rich grace are there for those who will believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and draw deep from the well of everlasting grace. Ken Sandy, in his book, The Peacemaker, offers these four promises that when you pledge to forgive somebody, you're making four commitments 
You are committing to not dwell on the incident. You are pledging yourself to not bring up the incident again and use it against that person. When you forgive somebody, you are pledging not to talk to others about this incident. And you also are committing to not letting this incident hinder your relationship any further. Those are the pledges of a peacemaker. And that is what it means when we receive the forgiveness of God through Christ. We are called by the Lord Jesus to lend that same grace to others. As it says in Colossians 3.13, As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. This past week, my wife drew my attention to a story that she found online about a young couple who were having their first child and were thrilled and excited when they learned that they'd be having a baby boy. And then their joy turned to sorrow and concern when the ultrasound revealed that this child would have very serious medical problems. And this young Christian couple decided to trust God to proceed with the term pregnancy to deliver the child. And when he was born, he was found to have a very severe cleft palate, so much so that he could not even open his mouth. But in addition to this malformity, he also had two cleft eyes. Neither eye had ever formed. And so this young couple was facing the overwhelming obligation to raise a child who would always be blind. Well, the boy's mouth could be fixed with surgery, thankfully. But the boy would never see. And so as the couple was wrestling with how to raise a disabled child, one of the most difficult experiences was enduring the stares that they received from people out in public. And then suffering the audacity of a very brash woman who came up to the young mother to assault her, demanding, why did you not abort this child? Well, as this young mother struggled mightily to bring her heart wounds before God, to find forgiveness through his grace to lend to this woman and others, her newborn began to began to give her a new sense of joy and hope. As the young child began to grow stronger and healthier, he developed this practice of giggling and laughing and responding to touch and words of affection. And as people in their community began to observe this delightful response from the child, these people who turned back in aghast at his unsightly appearance, found their hearts being warmed by the joy and the laughter of this loved little boy. People began to write to the mother, expressing how she and her child inspired them, affirming to her her decision for life. It had all been well worth it. It was well worth it. The author of Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
when people are first confronted with the cross, they gasp. They are aghast at the unsightliness of Jesus, the man of sorrows and disfigured beyond recognition. How could Jesus do this? How could this happen? How could God let this happen to his own son? But as people begin to draw near, they discover that it was because of their very sin that Jesus was placed upon that cross to be crucified. And that it was the love of God and his compassion upon us that sent his son into the world to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it was the commitment and love and joy of Jesus that held him there to endure and bear our burden and suffer in our place. Friends, I invite you to hear the joy. Hear the laughter of the fellowship enjoyed by God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who desire your fellowship, who want you to receive the forgiveness of sins, to be reconciled into the family of God, to accept Jesus as your Savior, and to go free through the forgiveness of sins. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we are so grateful that in your Son, Jesus Christ, we have a Savior who has provided the forgiveness of our sins. And I pray for each person here to grow, to understand, to appreciate this glorious truth and what it means for each one personally to show the same grace and forgiveness that we have received to others in our midst. We pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.